All right, we're starting a new series of messages this week called What's Inside Us? And as you can see, it's really a study on sin. Here's why. There is nothing more profoundly relevant and practical than to understand the fundamental human question, what's wrong with us? I mean, I want you to think about that for just a minute. I know normally what you think of is, what's wrong with you? (laughs) But I want you to think, what's wrong with us? I want you to think about that. If you're trying to raise a family, if you're trying to run a business, if you're trying to start a ministry or raise your kids, you need to have a working theory of an answer to what is really an ancient question, what is wrong with human beings? For example, why the selfishness? Why the cruelty? Why all the corruption? Why, why the crime? Why do people do this? Why the racism or injustice? Where does it come from? Now, I want to say to you, the Bible has an ancient answer to that question, and it is profound. The Bible says that the problem is what's called sin in the human heart. Now, I want to say from the very beginning, one of the reasons in society why this is widely rejected is because in spite of what some people think, people fail to understand that the doctrine of sin is really multidimensional. It is so nuanced. It's why we're going to take an entire series to talk about it. Now, for example, some people will say to me right now, oh, Pastor Shane. I can see those of you in Kerman right now saying, oh, Pastor Shane, oh, we know what the Bible says about sin. Sin, we've grown up in church. Sin is breaking God's law, so we're guilty and condemned. See, I know what the Bible says, but I just want to say to you today, North Point, That is only one aspect of sin. In fact, that is the last of the aspects of sin that we'll deal with in this series. I think the reason why sin tends to be widely overlooked by people is because people don't understand its multidimensionality. How rich, how nuanced the biblical teaching of sin actually is. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look Look at the first dimension of it today, and I just want to say to you, here it is. Here's what sin will do to a human being. Sin will reduce God. And I want to read to you a passage of Scripture that very likely, even if you've gone to church all of your life, you've never heard anybody so stupid as to preach a message on this text right here. In fact, I've never heard it preached on, uh, and I'll tell you why. It is so boring. It is at the end of the book of Judges. The reason nobody teaches on it, again, is because it's boring. Judges 17, 1 through 13. I'm just going to read to you the beginning of the story, then I'm just going to tell you how it ends because you'll fall asleep. It's so boring. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Judges 17, it says, Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you about which I heard you utter a curse. I have that silver with me. He said, I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol, and I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took how much? 
200 shekels of silver and gave those to the silversmith who made them into an image of an idol. And then they were put into Micah's house. Now, this son, this man named Micah, he had a what? A shrine where they would worship. And he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as priest. And in those days, you see, in Judges, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who had been living within the clan of Judah left that town in search of some place to stay. And on his way, he came to whose house? Micah's house in the country of Ephraim. And Micah says, where are you from? And he says, well, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. He said, I'm actually looking for a place to stay. Micah says to him, hey, live with me and be to my father a priest. He says, I will give you 10 shekels of silver a year. I'll give you clothes and food. So what did the Levite priest do? He agreed with him. He agreed to live with him. And the young man was so excited. Micah had installed a Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in whose house? Micah's house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Now, let me tell you what we have here. One of the reasons why people ignore this section or find it confusing is because up until now, everything in the book of Judges has been awesome. I mean, everything in the book of Judges has been so interesting. Judges is the history of Israel. They've been led by Moses out of Egypt, and they've come into Canaan. And what we have in the book of, jo- in the book of Judges, in the first 16 chapters up until now, are a series of fascinating stories. You've heard of the most famous people. For example, how many of you have heard of Gideon? We have Gideon in the book of Judges. And what happens in Judges is over and over people slide into sin. And when they slide into sin, they become enslaved to some foreign power. And then over and over again, 12 times in the book, God sends a judge. That's why it's called what? Judges, which is really a deliverer. And a judge would come and he would turn the people away from their sin and back to God and liberate them from their oppressors. I mean, it is dramatic. It is exciting. I mean, here's Deborah. I mean, there's Gideon. Then you got Deborah, always thrilling. You've got Samson, you know, beating people up and tearing things down. And then when you get to chapters 17 through 21, you get to the last five chapters, you're reading this great book, and you look at it and you go, ah, meh, you know, because it doesn't seem to be about anything. There are no judges, there's no one there to to fight against sin, there's no salvation that comes for anybody. In fact, in the last five chapters, God hardly shows up. Now, if, if we were gonna take a look at this story, I would say, here's what I'd call it. I would call this story Micah, Mom, and I would probably call it Micah, Mom, and the Levite. So let's add the Levite in there. Here we go. Because what you have here are three people. And and just to remind you of the story, you have Micah cheating his mother. He's the one that stole the money from her. But then he gives it back because he hears her uttering a curse against whoever the robber is. He says, look at the scripture, he says, well, you know, mom, I did it. 
I heard from you and about which I heard you utter a curse. I was kind of scared. I robbed you. And so here's what we know about Micah, by the way. We know that Micah's not very good because, let me ask you, how good can you be to rob your own mother? Come on. We also know, though, think about it, Micah's actually not very bad because how bad can you be to give it all back? We know he did something wrong, but like most of us, he got scared, he made it right. So Micah cheats his mom, then what happens? You heard this part of the story. Micah cheats mom, but then mom cheats who? Do you remember? Mom cheats God. Because you notice when she's really excited, she says, I'm so happy my son came and give this. I solemnly consecrate all my silver to the Lord. I will give it all back to the Lord. But then when she finally came to it, how much did she actually give? 200 shekels. And not only that, what does she do? She makes out of these shekels two images, two idols out of silver where they worship the Lord. Now, understand, you guys got to follow this. What she did and what Micah did was in making these idols. It was in complete contradiction to everything that God says anywhere. You read the Ten Commandments. You read the prophets. You go through the law of Moses. And God says, let's look at it. Let's read this together, in fact. He says, ready? You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water below. I'll keep going. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. You you think these people would get it. But she does it anyway. So then she makes these idols, and along comes a Levite, and Micah and their mom. You know what they decide? They decide, man, we're going to become religious, and we're going to have our own shrine. And so they got an epod. What's an epod? Well, this is a a breastplate that a priest would wear. Go to the next slide, if you would. Here's what the priest looked like when they wore it. It had these stones on it, and they would use these for prayer, the Israelites. And here's what happened. Micah and her, his mom wanted to have their own sanctuary, their own place of worship. So along comes the Levite. Micah says, oh, wow, I want to hire you. Would you be willing to work for this amount? Levite says, sure, no problem. He's really excited. Mom's excited. They say, well, now we have a real Levite. We have an epod. We have a sanctuary. We have everything we want except, follow me here, this is something. In chapter 18, how the story ends, I'm just going to tell you. There's a group of what's called Danites that come along, and you know what they do to Micah and the mom? They take the Levite, they steal the Levite, they say, you're coming with us, you can't be here anymore. They say, we'll pay you more. And they take the images, which are worth quite a bit of money. Micah comes out and says, what are you doing? You stole my Levite. You stole my images. The Danites say, go home or we're going to kill you. So what does he do? He goes home. And that's how the story ends. (laughs) Come on, what is that story? It's called boring. Boring people doing all these boring, trivial things. And then you keep reading in Judges in chapter 19 through 21, you're completely unprepared for what happens. Because there's a gang rape of a woman that leads to a civil war between the tribes of Israel that leads to the genocidal destruction of whole towns and villages right down to the babies. And what's so strange about it is for the rest of the book, there's no judges, 
There's no salvation. There's no nothing. Now, here's the question I'm going to ask you. What's going on here? I'm going to say, on the one hand, this is absolutely terrible storytelling. Would you agree? Because in a good story, what, what are the elements of a good story? In a good story, you have somebody you actually care about. There is some character that you actually want to win, that you care about, you're engaged with. But here, there's nobody you actually care about. None of them are very good. None of them are very bad. They're shallow. They're unprincipled. They're not very interesting. They're boring. Now, normally in a good story also, there's some crisis that you want to see get resolved, right? But because these people are so shallow and so uninteresting, there's actually no plot. There's no stakes. There's no judges, no salvation here. There's nothing. And so I want to ask God, God, why would you put the story in here? Every other part of the book is about you doing mighty things. What's God showing us? That's what we got to ask. And here's what I think he's showing us as we kick off this series. I want you to think about this. Write this down. I think God is showing us what we look like without his salvation and work. Write that down. God is showing us what we look like without him. Boring. In other words, this is showing us the nature of sin. Now I'm going to ask you, I've been asking a lot of questions this morning, let me ask you one more. What do you think sin really does to a person when it gets in its advanced stages? What do you think sin does to the human heart? Think about the most sinful person you can think of. Now I have to admit, most of us believe that most people are kind of regular people. I mean, Micah and the mom were kind of regular. They weren't too good. They're not too bad. And when you think of regular people, you think, well, normal people, you think, Pastor Shane, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. To err is human. We sin. But when you think of truly people who are truly diabolical, like advanced evil, who do you think of? <laughs> Come on. Think about the media. You think of like Hans Gruber. Am I right? You think of like evil geniuses, the evil queen. Or in real life, when you think of somebody who's really evil, how many have thought of Hitler? You think of Hitler, or you think of Pol Pot, but I'm gonna say to you right now, that's actually not at all what the Bible says. Now, I wanna, I wanna explain something to you. There was a woman, her picture's coming up on the screen if you'd share it. Her name, you may, you may recognize her, her name was Hannah Arendt. She was a Jewish philosopher, a Holocaust survivor. She went to the trial of, how many of you remember this guy, Adolf Eichmann. He was the mastermind behind the concentration camps and the Holocaust. You might remember, he was called the Nazi butcher. And so Hannah went to the trial because they caught him, and she was shocked by what she found. In fact, she wrote an essay, and the essay was called A Report on the Banality of Evil. Now, what does banal mean, banality? Take a look. I looked this up. Here's the definition. Banality is a factor condition of being banal. It's unoriginal. It basically means that you're common, you're run-of-the-mill, you're stale, you're unimaginative. And so she looked at this guy when at his trial, the author of the Holocaust, and thought anybody who could have done this must be a monster. And when she saw him, she was blown away. She listened to him talk, and she thought, this is no monster. This is just a boring little man. He spoke in cliches. 
In fact, you can watch this trial. There was a movie made about this. He spoke with no insights. He had very little sense of humor. He had an absolute run of the mill. You know what was wrong with him? The biggest thing that was wrong with him was that he had a desire to be liked like the rest of us, and he wanted to advance in his career. And so she essentially said, he wasn't a monster. He really is just like all the rest of us. In fact, I quote, he was boring and superficial. He was uninteresting and shallow. The man in the glass booth, his deeds were monstrous, but he was so ordinary. He wasn't demonic or crazy. He was common. In fact, she described him as a rather bland bureaucrat who was idealistic in wanting to advance his career, but terrifyingly normal. Now, I'm going to tell you, when she wrote that article, people got so upset, they said, you can't say that. Can't say that about this guy. Anybody who could do this, they must be a monster. But I'm going to tell you, according to scripture, Hannah got it at least partly right. Because according to the Bible, the Bible says over and over again the most advanced, the most prominent, the most characteristic effect of sin on the human heart is not to make you bad, but it's to make you boring. In fact, I want you to write this down. Here's exactly what it does. The nature of sin is it reduces God in your life into a little idol, and it makes you boring. It reduces God, and it makes us boring. See, she looked at this man, and she said, see, God was so reduced in his life that he was so superficial, and that actually just led him a free fall into evil. See, listen, listen to me right now, friend. Whether you're online, you're here in person, you're in Kerman, I want to say to you, if, if all you're ever worried about is how you're doing, your career, your life, or, for example, a lot of people, they're always concerned about how they look or how things are affecting them. You know, there's nobody who said it better than C.S. Lewis. In fact, this is a point I made in your notes. It's actually a quote. That the real mark of hell, write this down, the real mark of hell is a sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. You're becoming hellish in the day of Facebook. In fact, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, we must understand hell is a place where everyone is perpetually concerned about his or her own dignity and own advancement where everybody always has a grievance, where everybody lives in the deadly seriousness of envy and self-importance. In other words, you can never get out of yourself. You're always feeling sorry for yourself. You're always focused on the self. And the nature of sin is it reduces God, it makes, you, it makes God smaller, and it makes you boring. In fact, if you'd write this down, sin makes you mediocre. You know why? I'm going to tell you this. As I described it, there is nobody more boring than somebody who's always worried about how they look. Do you agree? Do you see what sin does? It makes the primary thing in your life an incessant biography. It makes you uninteresting. It makes you unprincipled. It makes you shallow people. Now, most people think, what I'm saying that people don't get because most people think that advanced sin, a person who's really advanced in sin, they're gonna become an atheist, and it's not true. <laughs> no. 
A person who's advanced in sin, what we're told, what does the mom say? I want to go back to the story. What does mom say? Mom says, I dedicate to the Lord these two images. Now listen to me, come on. What this mom does is, she doesn't replace God, she reduces God. She doesn't say, I don't believe in God, she carves God. She subordinates God. She hangs God on a shelf on her wall. Come on, is anybody here? She's only focused on how do I look? What do people think of me? What's on my mind? C.S. Lewis said, it's a sleepless concentration on yourself. That is the essence of sin. It's not that it makes you bad, it makes you boring. Is anybody here? It makes you boring, and it makes God small. And so the question I just ask you is, how big is God in your life? Write that down. Because that's the self-reflective question we gotta ask this morning. Have I made God big? Is God the biggest thing in my life? Because I'm gonna tell you, this woman and Judges, this man Micah, they whittled God down. This guy, the Jewish butcher, the, the designer of the Holocaust, she had, he had whittled God down. He was nothing in his life. What did this woman do in Judges? She had put a handle on him. You know, you know what she had? She had a God that you could put in your purse. <laughs> she had a God that's manageable, who's tame. Now, friends, you think, boy, that's terrible, but we do that today. We craft God in the image we want him to be. We conform, we conform his thinking to what we think. Gosh, a God like that, we create this little God, and I'm gonna tell you this, listen to me, if you have a little God in your life, it's gonna make you a little person. And if you're a little person, you're gonna go with the flow of culture, and you will be evil, and you won't even recognize your evil. It's called being banal. That this man was capable. What's the point of judges? I'll tell you it's this. Boring people, given over to sin, feeling sorry for themselves, you're capable of terrible things. You reduce God. See, Psalm 50 verse 21 talks about it. When God looks at the people, God says, he doesn't say, notice this scripture, he's, he doesn't say you've rejected me. He doesn't even say you're worshiping other gods. Look at this. He says you've reduced me because he says you thought I was exactly like you. How do we do that? How do we make God so small in our life? This is what sin does. I'm gonna give you a few things. I'm gonna give them to you very quickly. Are you ready? Everybody ready? All right, here we go. Get ready. First thing. We think God is like us, so we actually think that God can be bought. Write that down. We think God can be bought. Now let me give you an example of that. Some of you are coming to church, you've started reading your Bibles, maybe you've cleaned up your life a little bit, and what you're coming to think is, God owes me. God, I need a little strength. God, I need a little inspiration this morning. God, I need you, and what's happening is, you think God is a God that can be bought. You actually think that God's become impressed. What did Micah say? Micah says, oh man, I got a Levite, woo! 
Now surely God is going to be impressed with me. Now, don't you see, here is the essence of sin. Let me just tell you something. This is the essence of sin, everybody, for you to say, now God has to answer my prayer. Why? Well, because I'm doing everything right. Now, here's the problem with you. Why are you doing everything right? I'm going to tell you why. You're doing it to get control of God. What have you done? You've whittled God down. He's in your purse. There is nothing that will make you more boring. There is nothing more boring than a smug, self-righteous, religious little person who's made a little God and called that God Jesus Christ. Let me give you another way. We think God is like us in his wisdom. Write that down. Let me, let me give you an example. Do you know why we're scared so often? Or why we're angry that things aren't going right? Do you know why we get like that? So many of you, for example, walk away from the faith, or you've done this in your life, you walk away from the faith, and you, and you say something like, well, I can't believe in a God who would let this happen, and this happen, and this happen. And I just want to say to you, what are you saying? You're saying that because you can't think of a good reason for what you're going through, there can't be a good reason? Don't you see what you're doing? You've simply reduced God to your level. What you're saying is, God couldn't be wiser than you. Do you know how asinine that is? Intellectually? I'm gonna say this to you, and by the way, your argument is totally flawed, because if you believe in a God who's big enough to cause this to happen to you, then you have to believe he's at least smarter than you. Come on. And you say you're mad at God. Well, I'm mad at God. I'm gonna tell you right now, you can't have it both ways. You can't acknowledge he's more powerful than you, but you're not gonna let him be wiser than you? Idiots! He says, you thought, God laughs. He says, you thought I was like you. <laughs> Don't you see what you've done? God says, you've edited me. You've revised me. You see how funny that is? Nobody's laughing. <laughs> how else do we do that? We think God is like us in scale. Write that down. In scale. For example, you look at all this, sci you look at all this science stuff, and I love faith and science. They go together so well. If you study, did you know that if the distance from the earth to the sun, it is actually 93 million miles. Everybody say 93 million, because that's a lot. Do you know that if, if that distance were reduced to the thickness of just like a, like a piece of paper like this, so this is 93 million miles, then the diameter of just this galaxy would be a stack of these papers 310 miles high. Did you know that? And our galaxy is just one of gazillions and gazillions of galaxies just in our cluster. Our galaxy is the way a single grain of sand, you know, relates to all the beaches and all the sand coasts of all the world. Just one grain is our galaxy. How many galaxies are there? Just in our cluster. And yet, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that if God is real, here's what it says, <laughs> Hebrews 1.3, it says, if there's a God, he holds the whole world together, the universe, he holds it up by the word of his power. 
In other words, the entire universe is like a contact lens sitting on God's finger. Now I'm going to ask you, would you say to a God like that, yeah, God, I might accept you after I've had a little fun with my life. Is that what you say to a God like that? Do you say to a God like that, God, you have to answer my prayer? You become my assistant? Do you say to a God like that, don't call me, I'll call you? Do you say to a God like that, I'll be happy to believe in you if you'll answer all my questions? Why do you keep missing appointments with a God like that? I'll tell you why. You've forgotten the scale. That's what sin does. The audacity of it. What does he say? He says, you think I'm like you. Don't you see? Everything comes from that. All of our doubts, all of our anger, all of our self-righteousness. Let me give you another one. We think he's like us in his attitude toward time. Write that down. Now you say, Pastor, what do you mean? Why do you say that? Well, it's because when God sees time, I want you to understand, God sees time all at once. In fact, if you were to look down on the Mississippi River from like above the earth and you were to look down on the Mississippi River, all the parts of the Mississippi River would be equally visible to you. Is that right? But if you're, and that's how God sees time. God sees all the bends of time. But if you're down on the Mississippi River like us, well, what do we see? We only see our bend. And my friends, I'm going to say this. We are so simple Did you know that things that we remember way in the past because of his vantage point of time he sees right now, they're still happening from his point of view. That thing that you did, that sin two years ago, that's still happening in his nostrils. Why is he a God of justice? What is the reason why God can't just get over anything? Why? There has to be a punishment because he sees it as if it's happening right now. That's the reason there has to be atonement. That's the reason God doesn't just say, I forgive you. He says there has to be atonement for sin. Some of you seated here, some of you watching online, wherever you are in Kerman, you're saying, well, why? Why does it have to be judgment? I can't believe in a God who judges. Yeah, the scripture says, you think God is like you. Don't you see what we've done today? We've conformed God to our image. You think of all the terrible things you've done. Now, I want you to think for just a minute. Think about the things that you did a year ago, two years ago. You hurt a lot of people. You felt terribly guilty at the time, but now you don't feel guilty anymore because to you, well, it's over. Well, no, no, no. In God's time, he's right there. And so God says there has to be a punishment for that sin. And I'm gonna tell you, all of human beings' problems come from this issue. Our God has become little. We've made him little. Listen to me. You've made him manageable, You've gotten rid of the things that you don't like about God. You've said, I can't believe in this part anymore. And you've whittled him down and you've hung him on your wall. There's no greatness in you anymore. There's no freedom. There's no judges. There's no salvation. Do you realize? Listen, if you really accepted the God that is infinite, if you really accepted the God that is infinitely, immeasurably beyond your judgment, if, if you're surrendering to that God, if you, if you say to that God, God, I accept what you say, and all I'm gonna tell you, you'll be free. You will be totally free. Why? Nothing can bother you anymore. 
I'm, not if you use him, not if you say, God, I'm using you to get the feelings I want or the things I want. God, I'm using you to get meaning in my life. No, 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 he is the meaning in my life. If he was the ultimate, instead of just a little means to the end, something you've put a handle on and you've learned how to handle, do you hear what I'm saying? Does anybody hear what I'm saying? If he were big, you'd be big. If he were great in your eyes, you would have a great heart, and you would walk through life greatly. You wouldn't be scared and upset with the circumstances that are beating you. Why? Because you'd know he's bigger than those circumstances. And you'd know that he has your life in his control. Therefore, it's a happening. It must be happening to his glory. Therefore, Lord, I praise you, and I worship you. So, how can we be cured? That's the question, isn't it? So we're gonna start this week with how can we be cured? We're gonna look at a couple of things. You ready? I'll say this first. Write this down. We need a king. Write that down. We need a king. Because the answer is in verse six. Look at what it says. It says, in those days, let's read it together, in fact. In those days, Israel, let's read it again. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Isn't that a description of our culture today? It says the reason for all this idiocy, the reason for all this smallness is that in those days, Israel had no king. Now, what's the author saying? The author's actually saying, he says, there's no savior. You know why he's saying that? Because they needed something better than the judges. What we need is a king, and they came to know that. In fact, if you ever read the Old Testament, then you know even when they get the very best king, David, we actually see that what they needed is a savior. And this is what we're being pointed to. to. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think God said all through the Old Testament, you shall not make an image? Because you see it all over. You shall not make an image of me. You shall not make an image of me. You... Now, why is it by the way, did you know Israel is the only religion that did this? Every other religion in the world said make an image. Israel's the only religion that said you must not make an image. Why? Why did Israel say you can't put anything there? I'm gonna tell you why. It's because God already knew, if you would write this down, that the king that we need is going to be the living savior, Jesus Christ. God looked at man and he says, no, 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 don't you dare create your own image. Don't you put an image there. That spot is reserved. He says, don't you put an image there, but not because there won't ever be one, no. In fact, in Colossians 1.15, look at what it says. Colossians 1.15, let's read it together. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. For in him all things were created, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Now here's what God is saying. God looks at you today and God says, friend, don't you see, I understand that you want an image. Why? Because we're people. We want to feel things. We want to touch things. We have emotions. Listen, I know where you're at, friend. You want to grab hold of something. And God says, I want to give you something, but what I want to give you is the true image, the living image, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if you get to know him, God says, he will reveal my glory. On the one hand, he'll be somebody that you can finally relate to, a human being, a person, someone who loves, who embraces Jesus, who is the Christ, the King, the Savior, is someone who is accessible, greater than you could have imagined, this great God before whom you are nothing but a speck of dust. Listen, you are nothing but an amoeba. Turn to your neighbor and say, did you know you're an amoeba? You are nothing but paramecia. You tell your wife that. Say, hey, baby, you are nothing but paramecia. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. And yet he came to die for us, King Jesus. The king you need is the savior. I want us to take a worship minute before we're done. I'm going to go a little long. Everybody's going to hate me. I'm sorry. Welcome back, Shane. And I want you to lead us in a song about King Jesus. Stand up, would you? Let's sing this to Jesus together. And let it be a moment of repentance. Give it to God. Expend some energy. Sing with chutzpah. Listen, let, let her lead you in this song. Go ahead, Megan. You are good, such a God. 
No other religion on this planet will admit that God is so big he was willing to become small. And by the way, he paid the price for that sin and time. He can't be bought, but he bought you by going to that cross. And the more you know that, the bigger he gets, the bigger we'll get. God, help us with what's inside us. Father, in this moment, we all just turn to you. We love you. I pray for anyone here that needs to know your grace and your salvation, that you would make yourself known to them, that you'd reveal yourself. As I pray, if there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to join us in our lounge, which is to my left. You see a sign, the prayer lounge. There are people that would love to pray with you. We just want to see you know Jesus today. We have QR codes on the patio that you can scan where I have a message video that will tell you how to know Jesus, but we just want you to know Jesus. Father, would you bless these? Walk with them. Fill them. Everybody pray this prayer with me. Jesus, be my king. Come into my life. I want to know you. Change me in Jesus' name. Everyone said with enthusiasm.